your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Today I will be reading and preaching for you out of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, through the end of the chapter in verse 18. Hear now the word of God. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, you have already this morning taught us so much. You have encouraged us with your word over and over again. May it be that we would hear this song that Jesus sings And that we too would not be ashamed to sing for your glory and for the comfort of one another. Help us this day as we read and hear the preaching of the word to learn this song well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Last week we considered Christ's superiority over all things. Truly from the least to the greatest, and that all things serve a purpose in magnifying his glory, but namely for the purposes of our salvation, that everything from the things that we cannot see, from the things that we cannot understand, to the things that we encounter, the things that bring us delight, and the things that bring us suffering, everything is for the purposes of God's superior glory through Jesus Christ and for our salvation. Now, I don't know if you've meditated on that or thought about that throughout the week and as you encountered certain things or saw certain things or thought about different things here and there, if you thought, how does this fit into the glory of God and how is this for the purposes of our salvation? Sometimes you can see those things clearly. You can see how, uh, just like in our prayer time this morning, you can see what God was doing in Miriam's life that calls her to come to a place of understanding, of greater understanding to the discipline But we sometimes don't see it, and sometimes we don't understand what the purposes are. But God is still ultimately doing this for the glory of Jesus Christ and for our salvation. 
And we ended that particular passage and that particular sermon with this particular phrase, which should be very puzzling to us, but also very encouraging for us. It says that, but we see him, Jesus Christ, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. That Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. When we think about glory and honor, we would not typically think about the suffering of death. When we think about someone getting hurt or someone getting killed in any kind of competition or battle, that is typically something that we would think of as a bad thing. You know, when I know that Knox and I have a friend who does MMA fighting, and if he goes into the ring and if he gets really hurt or if he gets hurt to the point where he is down and he loses, the, the victory is not for him. So in this particular case, for Jesus to be given the crown of glory and honor because of the suffering of death, it should cause us to pause and, and, and dwell upon that and think about that. Suffering is something unique here in how it is bringing glory to God. And this next passage goes into that more deeply for us to hopefully understand that more, not just to understand how that brings such great glory to God, but how that brings great strength to us in our own suffering. Today's sermon is, you can break it up into four sections, and they're not going to be uh, like point one, point two, point three, and point four. I want you to think about the more as overlapping activities that are going on all at the same time, even though that as we go through the passage, I will highlight these things more. They're always bringing each other into the fray. They're not segmented out as we go through this passage. Number one, there's suffering and sanctification, verses 10 through 11. Two, there's the singing over shame, verses 11 through 12, that we see Jesus doing. Then in verse 13, it highlights a passage out of Isaiah about strong speech. And when I say strong speech, you need to look at both sides of the meaning of the word strong. Not just that if if I was like, today I'm going to speak to you with strong speech. Some of you would be like, oh, no. But when I say strong speech, you think about strength, something that is going to be of substance. But that speech is also, if, if we were to talk about this house, here we're in the basement of this house that's a good sized house and if i said those trusses are likely to be strong trusses that would be very encouraging to you because we have refuge behind under this if i said these are soft trusses you'd be like let's exit the building (laughs) so the same thing when you think about strong words there's a two-edged sword to it so that's in verse 13 and then lastly verses 14 through 18 sharing strength during suffering. Again, you can see here that the bookends of the particular passage today has to do with suffering. As we see that it is the thing, the suffering of death, that crowns our Lord and brings him glory. This particular passage, which brings us into it with him, is bookended by this whole idea and understanding of suffering. We Again, All of this, the book of Hebrews in this particular passage, is talking about the superiority of Jesus Christ. But here in this passage, we see that he is the superior leader, 
for a superior destination because of a superior achievement. He's the superior leader we see here in this passage that says, again, highlighting for us that from whom all and by whom all things exist. That covers everything. He is supreme over everything. Now, I want to take just a quick side note because depending upon what translation you have in front of you, and I will have to say that of all the, the, that I've studied so far in Hebrews, uh, this particular paragraph in Hebrews, I think, requires a little bit of translation weeding. Now, not because I think that the uh, translations are wrong. I'm not really certain. I want to weed out the things that are not as clear. And when we're talking about here, who is the... By whom, for whom and by whom all things exist. In the ESV, it leans toward, this is talking about God the Father. Now, when you read the Greek, it doesn't really reference the Father. And so you're having to imply here that, that this is God doing something. And that, so it's saying that God, who is for whom and by all things exist, is doing this activity through the Son. But if you look at the Greek, it seems that it's saying that this, it's mainly just focusing it on being, all of this work is being done through the Son. So when I say I'm weeding out, I don't really know if the Father is being referenced specifically here, but being that the Trinity is one, it's, it's not wrong to say that the Father is involved in this activity. But I think this is still highlighting the action being of Jesus. So we see that Jesus is for whom and by all things exist. And I speak that with confidence because other passages in the New Testament highlight that about Jesus specifically. So he is the superior leader and he is the founder of our salvation. Now I'm going to talk a little bit more about this word founder in a few minutes also, but this is why he is the superior leader. He is the founder, or you could say the one who makes the foundation of our salvation. And the superior destination is clear. It says that he is bringing many sons to glory. Now, this is not just a national people coming to Canaan, which was a shadow of what is going on here, that the destination is a superior destination, that this is glory. This is fulfillment and oneness with God. It is our final rest. It is our final communion with God. This is a superior destination. And so that to get this, the superior leader to get to this superior destination with us requires a superior achievement. We see that the very first part of this, it says, for it was fitting, and I want to talk about this word fitting, and that Jesus was made perfect through suffering. We see that this achievement was something that was fitting, and is a more powerful word than what we might see when we first think about the word fitting, and that he was made perfect through suffering, that this achievement has to do with his suffering. So just to kind of bring our heads to kind of wrap around where I hope to go with this today is, does anybody know what a Purple Heart is? Has anybody heard of the, the metal called a Purple Heart? I know Knox has. Knox was talking to somebody about that recently, and that's what brought it to mind. Can somebody tell me what a, a Purple Heart metal signifies? Wounded soldiers. Wounded soldiers? What, how do you get one of those? <laughs> Wounded in battle, and you live, you, you get a purple heart. 
Is it wounded or killed? I thought. Maybe it is killed too, but at least you know if you're wounded in battle, right? It's I think from what I've read, it's wounded or killed in battle, and and it. Do you know how they determine that? I mean, you would say it's kind of obvious. Well, they have a certain criteria. The Purple Heart is an interesting um, medal that it doesn't really require a decision of Congress or, or any particular people. They, you just have to meet a certain criteria. Now, if you are in the trenches during battle and you get frostbite on your feet um, and you're wounded, that doesn't count. They actually have a certain criteria list of things that can happen. It cannot be circumstantial things that happen. It has to be a combat kind of, there has to be an enemy attacking. And I think that they've now included the terminology having to do when terrorists attack. And so terrorists, if you're involved in activity where you are wounded or killed during a terrorist attack, someone that is an enemy of the nation does one of those things. And if you fit this particular list, it's a, it's a formulaic list you are given a wounded heart as a, a medal, as a recognition of that service giving, given. Now, there's an irony to this. And I think this is the irony that kind of plays in to this whole idea when it says that Jesus is not ashamed. When we think about things in general, when it comes again, going back to this idea of competition or battle, getting hurt or dying in battle is not generally a good thing. You don't go to battle to lose. You don't go to battle to get hurt. When you hear about casualties in battle, that's a negative thing. It causes generals to grimace when they hear the numbers of casualties and fatalities during a battle. It is a painful thing. But here with the Purple Heart which is, I think is a really good parallel, parallel analogy, that there is a point of honor that is given, a position of honor. If you are one who was wounded in your living, if you, you can get one of those tags that has it on there. And when you see that, you know that this person, what did they do? They suffered in battle for the sake of overarching victory. And it's very much an understanding that I think when we think about it, it's a very Christian understanding. When I go to the um, city council meetings or the board of supervisor meetings and I'm talking to them, I'm like, this, this whole talk about not having an abortion mill in our community is very consistent with everything you talk about. You all celebrate the EMTs that go into different, difficult situations to help people. You talk about firefighters who go into burning buildings to help people who are, who are hurting. You talk about police who risk their lives to do something. This is very consistent. And if something happens to a policeman or a firefighter or an EMT, or even when they're talking about the school budget, whenever a teacher who's given her time or his time to their students in just exhaustive work, we see that as an honorable thing that when they are harmed or hurt or weakened or tired, that they're doing something victorious. But Satan is opposed to that. Satan says that this is weakness. And when we think about other religions like Islam, Islam is a conquering religion. They do not like weakness. If you read any kind of history about, the, you know, if, you, if you go look at um, the history of Constantinople 
what some people call Istanbul today. <laughs> I still like to call it Constantinople. Um, the back and forth of that particular territory is always about who's getting this victorious conquering reputation. The idea of losing or getting hurt or even dying in that kind of circumstances, those kind of circumstances, is shameful. And I believe that we face that temptation each day. When we think about achievement and we think about our particular lives, we are constantly faced with the same kind of temptation from Satan that you're losing, that the suffering that you have is shameful. So I want you to kind of bring that background and thought into this as we go through this particular passage, and hopefully it will highlight for you how this makes Jesus superior. So first of all, fitting. It says, for it it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It's fitting. Now, Again, I, I, I'm wanting to weed a little bit with translation here because I'm, I'm not saying that's a wrong word, but you know, when we think about that's fitting, like you know, it's a fitting for the circumstances. Like if somebody dresses up to um, a, a wedding or to to a funeral, that's a fitting thing to wear. You know, it's like it, it matches the scenario. The word here is actually much more potent than that. That the the Greek word here means that it is necessary. It's a criteria that's required. It's a required path. It's more than just, than just being just proper. It's, it's a necessary criteria is completed. Just like when we think about the Purple Heart, that it, there's a certain criteria that has to be met. And so if they look at the circumstance of someone's being wounded or killed, they have to look and say, okay, this, this meets the criteria. It fulfills that. It's just not, oh, this is a fitting circumstance. So again, it's a, it's a fine word, but we might water it down too much. It is necessary in Jesus himself, even in his resurrected state, when he is walking with the disciples and they don't even know who he is, and they're kind of talking about the circumstances, and you can, obviously it seems like they're still kind of wigged out about the whole thing, and he's like, did you, not, did you not understand from the prophets and from Moses that it was necessary that the Christ must suffer? It's a criteria for his glory that he does this. Moving on. And it says that to bring many sons. Now, I want to just soak in on that a little bit, too, because the, if you look at the different translations, some of them, like the new NSAB from 2020, says sons and daughters. And I think it's fine. We're all incorporated into understanding that sons and daughters fall under this idea that we are the children of God. But we need to be careful not to erase that it's focusing primarily on sons, not on men and versus women, but the position of sonship. Because it's inside of that, if we weaken it, that we will miss the understanding that there's an inheritance here that comes that was only for sons. And the amazing thing about the gospel is that men and women, sinful men and women, sinful boys and girls are considered sons of God. 
So when we erase that and we just kind of nullify it and we'll just say children or sons and daughters, we miss the idea of the heightened sense. But what's going on here, the trajectory that's going on here is this sonship comparison that we are now being brought into it. It's our adoption. And if you look at it consistently, the particular Greek word sometimes is set up next to the word, the Greek word for daughter. So it doesn't, it's not an all-encompassing word, even though we can understand that it is bringing all of us into this. It is sometimes used as children, but we need to continue to highlight this understanding of the inherited, the inherited position of sonship. And then I want to move on to focusing a little bit on this word for founder, that Jesus Christ would be considered the founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. Now, the Greek word here is archegos, which means leader of a family or a clan. Now, founder, we, again, in our understanding, when we think it's, it's a fine word, but I think it's lacking in understanding that the idea here is that he is this pioneer, that he is this leader, he is this patriarch of a family of people, and that he is carrying with him, that as he is doing this, he is our leader going forth in securing that salvation. And I use the word patriarch because it's a parallel word. Archegos means leader of a family or a clan. Does anybody know what the word patriarch means? When you think about it, and it's Father, who said that? Father of a nation. Now, what, what, what do you? Why do you say father? It does. It is consistent, but the word patriarch actually means leader of a family or a clan or a nation. It is not specifically male by its word. And you might think, well, it says patri, isn't that the same thing as padre? And it's like, actually, the word patriarch comes from the Greek patria, which means clan, not the Latin pater, which means father. It actually is implied that it's going to be a male leader. It's an implication that's accurate, and it's fine to have that implication, but the word actually is focusing on clan or family. So it means family leader or clan leader or nation leader with the implication of it being male. So it's not that patriarchy and matriarchy are the two opposite things. Patriarchy means clan leader, family leader, and matriarchy means female leader. That's actually, the, the word is more powerful than even saying that it's a male leader. It's an implication that's accurate, but we need to understand here that Jesus is the patriarch of our salvation because he is our family leader. And again, it's important that we go beyond the word just founder because when we think about founder, we may think, well, you know, someone founded a business or someone founded this particular organization. No, the word here is archegos, which means he is a family leader, a family pioneer. He is a patriarch because he's bringing his family into this salvation. And that's a lot different than just how our typical interpretation of the word founder is. And so when you start putting all of these pieces together, we see 
that this calling of Jesus' suffering is fitting because it's a required path for him and that he is bringing all of these children into sonship because he is the patriarchal leader of this nation, this kingdom of God that are considered to be the children of God. It's a much deeper and more beautiful picture of what Jesus is doing here than maybe our more modern day of understanding of and how these words are interpreted. And this word perfect, this word perfect, we might think, well, Jesus was perfect. He was sinless. He could do no wrong. You know, everything's going to be right about him. But even this word perfect is deeper than what we understand. Also, the Greek meaning of this word is more consistent than what you see in Exodus when we see the consecration and the anointing of priestly office. That this suffering is like a cloak of honor for him, of ordination of this priestly office that he has. It's not just a Purple Heart medal. It's actually his anointing. The suffering is his anointing into this patriarchal position that allows him to be the leader and the champion for all of us. So when it says perfect, it is that he has received this anointing a priestly position for us. It's a very powerful paragraph. If you look at these words in the Greek, in a sense, you know, it's like it would be great if we all knew Greek so that we could see this, the potency of, of what's going on here. But I hope that that brings that out a little bit more for you to see. And that's how this particular passage is introduced to us. I want to take a moment, though, to tell you about a story. Um, and that before we go into these particular references that the Hebrew writer gives us to show us what Jesus is doing in this particular role of this champion, this patriarchal champion for us, the the founder, the priestly founder of our salvation. In the late 1300s and early 1400s in Bohemia, um, some of you may know of the martyr John Huss. He was a precursor of the reformers. This is before Reformation. If you know your what what century did the Reformation occur? Kind of a test for you all. Sixteen hundred. Right, the 1500s, So it was the 16th century. So it was in the 1500s. And so this is the late 1300s. Is when John Huss was born, and he died in the early 1400s. And he and a guy named Jerome of Falfish. I'm not sure if that's pronounced right, but when you read it, it looks like Falfish, which kind of seems smelly, <laughs> but that was the area in which he lived. Um, I can think of all kinds of names that we could have in Mendoto when they do the fertilizing in the area. But the primary teaching of Huss and Jerome was this, and this is a, someone else's quote, that the, their primary teaching is that the precepts of Scripture conveyed through understanding are to rule the conscience. In other words, that God's speaking in the Bible and not the church speaking through the priesthood, is the one infallible guide. Now, John Huss and Jerome of Falfish, they were good friends, and this was their part of their ministry, and this is what got them killed. If you know anything about them, this is the, the primary thing that got them killed, is that they believed that the Scripture was superior. Now, we may think, again, this is just Christianity 101. It's not always been that way, and it's not like that today. <laughs> 
It's still not like that today, that, that the Scriptures are superior. And I would even say that today, for ministries that are promoting that, they're going to face persecution. They may even face death. They are going to definitely face suffering. When they called Huss to recant of this position, of these particular teaching, it said, how should I look on those multitude of men whom I've preached the pure gospel? No, I esteem their salvation more than this poor body now appointed to death. That he knew that he would be a hypocrite after preaching the truth from the scriptures, that if he recanted at this point, that it would be a detriment to their salvation and that it would be better to die. It says that the bishops put a dunce cap on his head as they were about to burn him and they painted faces of demons on his hat and they inscribed the word heretic." that he was the leading heretic. Now here we've already seen that Jesus is called the Archegobos. I already messed it up now. What was that word again? (laughs) Archegobos. Hold on a second. Let me back up here. Archegos, sorry. That he is the the leader of a clan. Here they, they were mocking him as they were about to kill him, that he was the Arch. Heretic. And then they said to him, Now we devote your soul to the devil. And then Huss replied, It says, I do commit my spirit into thy hands, O Lord Jesus, for thou have redeemed me. And he was then handed over to the secular authorities and led to be burned. Three times they relit the fire in order to make sure that his body was burned to ashes. And when it was done, they dug up his ashes along with the soil underneath and they scattered it in the Rhine. River, And then a supporter of the Pope, after not only did they do this to Huss, they did the same thing to Jerome. He gave an account of watching both of these deaths, and he says, Both bore witnesses themselves with constant mind when their last hour approached. I mean, they were of sound mind and consistent all the way through. They prepared for the fire as if they were going to a marriage feast. They uttered no cry of pain. And when the flames rose, they began to sing hymns. And scarce could the venomousy of the fire stop their singing. They sang. They entered into eternity doing the occupation of what will be their eternal occupation of singing. And why were they singing? Well, we can hear that, understand that that Huss wanted to continue to encourage all of those people, that he was thinking about the glory of God and the comfort of the children of God. And that singing was there. So as we go into this particular passage, and we see here that it says, this is why Jesus was not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing 
your praise. That one snapshot of Psalm 22 there does both of these things, and it is the highlight of everything that we see in the calling of the Christian, which was the calling of Christ, was a tell of God's name, the Father's name, the glorious name of God, the power and the authority of God, to my brothers, and in the midst of my brothers, in the congregation, to sing their praise. It is to bring glory to God and to bring comfort to those whom are hearing. He does this because, backing up just a little bit, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are one. Again, if you look at, if you're looking at your Bibles, I'm weeding out again there. If you just go with the Greek, that's actually what it says. The translation says, all have one source. But if you read the Greek, it says that for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, it actually says they are one. Now, you could say they have one source. That's fine. It's still consistent. But there's a lot of potency here in understanding that Jesus is seeing himself as one with his brothers. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. I know I'm biting off way too much here. but So here we have this little snapshot of this song that, that the writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is singing and this is Psalm 22. Does anybody else know any other parts of Psalm 22 that's pretty popular? <laughs> Turn over to your Bibles to Psalm 22. And as you're turning to Psalm 22, I want us, as we think about this oneness that we have with Christ, when we think about how Christ is this pioneer and victor for us. I want you to think about, and this would be easier for us to think, because sometimes we have to use worldly examples to help us to get in, in the right frame of mind. What the writer of the Hebrews is doing here, he's quoting a lyric from a song. All right? That's pretty simple. And this particular lyric is a representation of the whole song. And in this particular um, passage, in the consistency of this passage, it is a representation of a second part of a song. Now, a lot of us know a lot of different songs, and we can sometimes hear one verse, and it brings a lot of things to mind. Again, this is the worldly example I want to use, just because it's something I encountered this past week. Some of you may, uh, if, you're from, if you were alive during the, the 80s like I was, uh, I used to watch a television show called Cheers, which is about a bunch of people in a bar and just talking and comedy, and, but it was a hit. It was a huge hit. And, and they were really good actors doing that. And, and one of the main actors, she recently died. And, and I was watching different things about, you know, kind of memorializing her and her past. And, and closer to the end of their season, there was a time where she was a host in Saturday Night Live. And yes, I used to watch that too. I'm not encouraging any of you all to go back and dig up old Cheers episodes and watch old Saturday Night Live episodes. But there was something as I was studying for this and I saw this clip, it made me think about what I was preaching on today. And when she, and if you watch Saturday Night Live, the, whoever's hosting it will come out and they'll talk. And, and they were coming, I think they, were, I think they were, were supposed to be done with their show. It had gone from like 1982 to 1993. And this was in 91. And it was, you know, they're wrapping things up. And she starts talking about how she was glad to be there, but that she misses her friends from Cheers. And she started to sing the theme song, which back then, 
if you watch this, you know, especially if you watched it weekly, the theme song got into people's head. And it was a, a very endearing theme song. And she started saying, making your way in the world today takes everything you got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. When you like to get away and then people, the different cast members were kind of feathered through the audience started getting up and singing it, and people were singing it with them. They, they all know the lyrics because it struck a chord with them, no pun intended. And when people would hear this particular song, it would not only remind them of the show, but it would remind them of what the purpose of the show was, which it was supposed to be a refuge for people through a difficulty of life. And we were all kind of seeing, whoever were fans of the show, we were all in this refuge together in this bar that was down in the basement, and it struck their chord in their heart. Anybody watch Cheers when you were young? That's good. Oh, you did. Okay, so you know what I'm talking about. But the song brought all of those things to mind. So when the writer of the Hebrews says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. The Christian Hebrews here, they would have heard a lot more than just that phrase. It would have brought the whole song to mind. It would have brought everything that's backed up and behind that, and it would have come to them. And so I would love to just keep on going, but I feel like we have to stop because I don't think we are as familiar with Psalm 22 as the Christian Hebrews would have been. And so it's important to go back, but one of the things that you will find out in the very first verse of Psalm 22 You will see, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does anybody know why that's a a pretty significant verse of a song? Because Christ, I think, sung it when he was on the cross. It was some of his last words. And when, when Christ sung that phrase, most of us, when we hear preachers and, and commentators on that passage, we're thinking about the very act that Jesus is experiencing from his separation with the Father and what's going on with the wrath of the Father. And I don't think those are wrong statements to say that, but what he's doing when he is on the cross and what the Hebrew Christians and, under, and hearers of this passage would understand that Jesus was singing a song to the congregation to encourage them to understand that he was taking this song on himself. I've always understood Psalm 22, I wouldn't say wrongly, but incompletely. Psalm 22, I've always thought has been, this is David's psalm through his suffering that's a shadow of what Jesus was going to do on the cross. But what Psalm 22 is, is a song for the congregation as they experiencing suffering in trusting God in the suffering that they encounter through their persecution, that when Jesus was on the cross, he took, and this is crazy. It's actually our song. I've always thought about it being Jesus' song. That it was just a shadow of it being Jesus' song. But God gave this song to us. And he is taking our song to the cross with him. 
Because he's not a worm, but he became a worm. He's taking the song that was given to us to bring glory to the Father in comfort for the congregation. When he is on the cross, he is the epitome of what John Huss and Jerome did. He is singing before everyone to bring glory to the Father in comfort to the people. There's all the debate about how separated was God from the Father, from the Son, and that's fine. It's a fine conversation. But I think we miss the point that he is doing the very thing beyond even, even greater and superior to what Huss and Jerome is doing. And you think about shame. You think about how the shame was for the, the dunce cap to be placed on Huss's head. In both accounts in Matthew and Mark, it says that the people who were listening misunderstood what he was saying because he was speaking in Aramaic. And he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And they only heard Eli, Eli, Eli. He's talking to Elijah. Now you have to think about it. So when here he is on the cross singing this song, and you want to think about shame, and you want to think about the pain and the difficulty, that the people who were immediately under, the, under him, they were thinking Greek. And when you hear those words, Eli, it's more consistent with the word Elijah. It, it's, it, they were misunderstanding his, even his song. And I think we too today misunderstand that particular phrase, that particular verse was to represent the whole psalm for us. That I'm taking this whole psalm to the cross because you are my brothers. And I am dying on your behalf and I am not ashamed to call you my brothers. The shame that is inside of Psalm 22, that is our shame, I'm not ashamed to sing your song on this cross because I am taking you in your sins with me. So I want to read the psalm. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I find a rest. You are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Many strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me. Like a ravening and roaring lion, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. 
My strength is dried up like a postured. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. And I count on all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. This is a crying song. This is a lament song. It's a lament that is interwoven with praise. It's a lament that's interwoven with trust. But it is the song that God gave us to help us. And Jesus sings that, as we can see in the context of this passage, to bring glory to him and to help us. And we see that even in the context of the song, that as we see this is David's song, that is our song, that Jesus has made it his own song, that it says in the next verse, which is the victory portion of the, of the, of the song, it says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in all of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from them, but he has heard. When he cried to him, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations, remember that? All the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him, and it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. So he has done it. This song is a cry lament that turns into victory. That on the cross, when Jesus sang that first verse, it was a representation to us that he is taking our shame and our suffering with him. That he is putting it on himself and becoming the victor over it. That he becomes the founder. He becomes the champion. That he becomes the patriarch. He becomes the pioneer of this eternal praise of the Father. And he is changing, not only he is taking our suffering and conforming it into a thing that brings forth glory, he is also now teaching us how to sing. I'm actually going to end this sermon there. <laughs> I think it would be wise to stop there. And we'll go back um, after, <laughs> I'll have to do a, a rewind after Maharus does his um, chapter 3 passage. But do you see what I'm saying there? That this is not just a song that was 
a shadow of what was to come with Jesus, it is truly our shame and our suffering that he has taken and he has become champion of it. He has become victor of it. And it's just, and how that song ends, this is for those who are yet to be unborn. This is a song that is for us. To know that when Jesus was on the cross, that he was singing to both his Father and to us. Let us not misunderstand what he was singing. Let us dwell upon that particular psalm and let us remember that in our deepest suffering, in our most difficult situations, and as you will see in the context of this particular passage, in the most fierce of temptation, Jesus was on the cross singing for us. And now he is singing victoriously before the Father on our behalf of the victory. Jesus is singing for the congregation. And so that should teach us and highlight for us why that is so necessary that we come together, that he is our leader, that the nation of God's people, the true offspring of Abraham, for us to follow our leader in singing before the Lord among the congregation. That our, it, it, I don't know how we can do it. I don't know how we can face suffering and temptation without that. That is the calling that Jesus has taken on, that he has taken on without shame. He is not ashamed to do that for us. I mean, can you imagine that? Now, the next time that you're in the midst of your temptation and you are um, appalled at the temptation being in your mind or even that you have fallen to temptation, can you imagine if you could actually hear Jesus singing to you at that moment of the victory that he has over sin? You, I mean, just think about it. You wouldn't even want Jesus. You're like, Jesus, don't look at this. Don't, don't look at my sin. Don't even look at my thoughts. And he sings louder and more fervently. And he says, I am not ashamed of you. I am going to sing more fervently before my father and more fervently before you. Huss, when he was burning, he says, I cannot do anything but this for their salvation. Jesus cannot stop singing for us. So let us sing with him. Let us pray.